From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. And we welcome you to Open Line Thursday here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Radio Network. We are live on this Thursday afternoon. Uh, Tom Price here filling in for uh, Jack Williams. He is on the road. Uh, We'll perhaps talk about that later on, but the important thing is Jack will be back as soon as possible. Meanwhile, we have America's favorite Dominican, Father Brian Mullady. How are you today, Padre? Hi there, Tom. I'm fine coming to you from Santa Clarita, California. Used to live, yeah, used to live in Santa Clarita back in the 90s, and it's a, a beautiful parish where you are today, right? St. Kateri Tecacuitha, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. And you're doing a mission, is that it? Parish mission, it ends tonight, yes. We will pray for uh, a big attendance for everybody to come hear what you have to say. And uh, we're also going to be praying for some phone calls this afternoon as we're taking your calls for Father Brian Mullady. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 2883986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the US country code and that is uh you'll see, you know for mo- for most countries it's the number 1 and then 205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000, wait for our response and then text us your first name and your brief question, message and data rates may apply. And of course you can always send us an email the address openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put Father Brian or Thursday in the subject line so we can uh, do a little mixing and matching here. Uh, Make sure that the right email goes to the right host. All right, DeMichael McCall is our producer. Also, Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener. Ace McKay is handling social media today. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook Live, we're streaming there right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Ace will shoot that to us here in the studio. Hopefully, we can uh, get that answered for you um, today on uh, today's program. So today, Father, uh, a wonderful thing to be talking about uh, as we are approaching the end of Lent, and that is Lazarus. Yes, so we're getting there. Remember last Sunday, the rose vestments we had in the Laetare Sunday Rejoice? Yes. And even though we have to go through Good Friday, uh, the end result is before our grasp in a way. Yes. And the episode of Lazarus is a highly interesting one in Holy Scripture because, uh, as you know, Lazarus and Martha and Mary were friends of Christ. In fact, it was like his extended family almost. They weren't related to him by blood, but they certainly were very close to Christ. And he used to you know, rest with them at their house and things like that. And so Lazarus dies and uh, he's buried. Well, they send to Jesus to tell him, Jesus doesn't go. So the reason is, of course, because he's going to work this miracle and imagine the miracle. Uh, So he finally goes after a few days 
And uh, Mary stays at home when Martha comes to meet him. And she says, you know, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And he says, oh, your brother will live again, right? So then she says, I know he'll live again. She professes her faith. In the resurrection of the dead, which when we get to Easter, I'll explain more fully, is really a very difficult doctrine, though it's very rational. And then, of course, Christ says, well, I am the resurrection and the life. And she professes her faith in this. Well, then he goes to the tomb. And as you know, everybody says that there's, there's been a, will be a smell because his body has decayed. You know, sometimes Christ raised people from the dead, even a lie of that in a certain way, a prolonged way. But they had just died. In this case, you have someone who's been in the tomb several days, and at least the body has begun a little to corrupt. And all Jesus does is say, Lazarus, come forth. And can you imagine the reaction? Yeah. That group when Lazarus walks out. Now, of course, Lazarus doesn't have a risen body. He's restored to life in the manner of the body of this world. But still, it's an example to us that, first of all, Jesus is the Lord of life and death because he's one of the persons of the Trinity. But secondly, that he wants to show us that the final completion of man is not death. Death is actually caused by original sin. And though it's a necessary episode, which we must go through, the separation of the soul of the body, because of the punishments of the original sin, it's not the end of the person's existence. This is important because in Europe, there's grown up this idea, oh gosh, in the last 30 years, even some important theologians believe that they, they used to call it the divine terology from the word for bull, uh-huh. that man goes into the world like a bull goes into an arena and knows he's destined for death. What? <laughs> oh, yeah. And wow. then there's this cult all around death. And he makes you in mind of the fact, remember, the Nazis had a quite kind of death cult because the SS officers wore a skull and crossbones on their hats. Mm. And Christianity is just the opposite. We're not destined for death. We're destined for heaven. And so though Lazarus comes back to the manner of this world and will have to die again, he and Martha and Mary understand the truth of this. And remember, there are lots of people that come to see him after he's risen from the dead. And this doesn't, of course, sadly, placate the leadership of Israel. They become even more determined to kill him. <laughs> mm. They just don't get the message yeah. because yeah. they're too proud and too egotistical. So as we're preparing for the resurrection of the dead, we look at Lazarus as sort of the prelude to this wonderful episode in the life of Christ where he is going to say, look, this is what it's all about. This is why you're here. This life is just a pilgrimage. And your body will live again as well as your soul, living immortally, because man is not a, uh, has, does not have a body which is against his life. We're not Plato. We don't think the body's evil or we fell into a prison in it. 
the body's just as important as the soul, as Aristotle was very um, clear about, mm -hmm. and that until the resurrection of the dead, we won't see what the final completion of the problem of man is. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, thank you so much uh, for unpacking all that, and it's uh, certainly giving us a lot to think about and a lot to pray about. Uh, we just got an email, actually, uh, a little uh, message here from Kate May, who's watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Kate May says, Father Brian, does the genealogy of Matthew 1.16 belong to St. Joseph, and the genealogy of Luke 3.28-38 belong to Mother Mary? What do you think, Father? Uh, tradi uh, yes, traditionally scholars have maintained that because Jews, as you know, did not accept the testimony of women, mm -hmm. uh, and Gentiles did, that Matthew's gospel is written for the Jewish mission, and as a result, the genealogy and all the events described in the infancy of Christ are done from the point of view of Joseph. Luke, as you know, is a companion of Paul. Mm -hmm. And so he's writing his gospel for the Gentiles. And then as a result, the testimony of Our Lady is important. And her point of view concerning the genealogy, but also concerning Jesus's birth in the infancy narratives is emphasized there. So it's not that they're necessarily contradictory, but they're complementary. Okay, very good. Here's a question from Tom who says, I am a non-Catholic, uh, and a Catholic recently told me it would help me sell my home quicker by burying a small <laughs> saint figurine in the yard. So my question is, is this kind of thing supported by Catholic teaching, or is this a personal superstitious act? Well, it could be looked upon as a superstitious act, but the way we look on it, because, I mean, it depends on who you are and what saints you want. <laughs> I remember the, the sisters in California years ago, if they wanted to get a piece of property connected to their college, uh -huh. they bury a so St. Joseph's medal around. Oh, boy. <laughs> in it. And uh, it's more like we're asking the intercession of the saint to okay. help move the people who are going to sell us to us. Not that we think the medal is any magic about the medals. Well, that's a relief. Well, uh, Tom, thanks so much uh, for your question. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones here. We'll be talking with Rob in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Elizabeth in San Antonio. A couple of lines open for you right now. Hey, that's why we call it Open Line, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Looks like three lines are open right now for uh, questions to uh, Father Brian Mullady here on Open Line Thursday on EWTN on this beautiful Thursday afternoon. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We're going to get to Rob in Grand Rapids in just a moment here. I don't know about you, Father, but when I was a kid or, you know, growing up and as a young man, you either wore black socks 
or white socks, or maybe if you were just a wild man, you wore maybe an argyle pattern. And now socks are the big thing. And, and so everybody's got to have unusual socks. One of our staff members here, Tom Gray, wears uh, wacky socks all the time. Uh, but uh, of course, the church is right there with you. So we are now offering to you, through EWTN's religious catalog, Holy Spirit adult socks. These are inspired by the stained glass window at the back of St. Peter's Basilica at the Vatican. These socks will remind you of the heart of the church, the Holy Trinity, the boldness we can receive to share Jesus in our daily lives. Well, clearly, if you're wearing stained glass window socks, you're making a statement. Now, these socks are a crew length. They're made of cotton, nylon, and spandex. One size fits most, with men's ranging from size 5 through 11, women's ranging from size 7 through 12. Other designs available, including St. Michael the Archangel, St. Joseph, St. Francis, and many more. They sound like an awful lot of fun. And with these socks, you will be walking with the saints. How about that? They're available right now at EWTNRC.com. And uh, do check them out, EWTNRC.com. If you go to the search box and put in socks, S-O-C-K-S, you'll probably get to see what they look like. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Rob in uh, Grand Rapids listening on the Great Holy Family Radio. Hello, Rob. What's on your mind today? Hi. Uh, I was talking with my dad. It seems that God not knows the future because he chooses what to know and what not to know. And he brought up the verse that talks about where it did not even enter God's mind that man would be so wicked, and I apologize for not having the reference. Uh, I just wondered your thoughts on that. Okay. I'm not familiar with that reference um, because God certainly knew that man would sin when he created the world. Uh, he didn't, of course, positively cause it to happen. He left us free to do it, but he certainly knew that was a part of his plan because he wanted to bring forth a greater mercy. The human race is by nature called to be one with God in nature, but in Christ, we're one with God in person. And this is just unfathomable. Uh, also, God certainly knows the future. Uh, if you're t- speaking about the text where Christ says that he knows neither the day nor the hour, uh-huh. uh, the catechism is very clear about the fact, because this text was used by the Arian heresy, um, is very clear about the fact that when things are said not to be known in Scripture, in other parts of the Bible, it states that the Son of Man was not sent to reveal these things. Hmm. So Christ certainly knew it, but it wasn't a part of his mission to reveal it. But God certainly knows the future. In fact, he stands outside of time, as you know. Time is in its dynamism in all the ages returning to him. And he already knows what the outcome will be, but he doesn't force us to do it. It was our freedom and our free choices are a part of his providence. Mm-hmm. And he provides in such a way that we it's put into the decision that this will depend upon our freedom. Okay. 
Rob, thank you so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open line Thursday with Father uh, Brian Milady here on EWTN. And uh, regarding uh, your your opening monologue there, Father, where you were talking about Lazarus, uh, Elizabeth checked in from San Antonio. She says, uh, why did Jesus cry since he was just about to raise Lazarus? Lazarus. Oh, well, that's because death is always difficult. Okay. It shouldn't be. Man should not die. And Jesus weeps over Lazarus. Mm -hmm. Remember, he weeps also over Jerusalem. Yeah. In order to demonstrate that death is still an evil. Okay. It's an evil to the body. Mm -hmm. And also as an example to us, there are people that come into me in confession and they're they're very confused because their spouse died and they're still weeping after two years and they think there's something wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, That's normal and natural. St. Augustine says it's normal and natural to weep over the dead, sure. even though you know they're in heaven. Mm. Yeah, You weep over the fact that they are not present with you now and you miss them. So that's that's the answer to that. Very good. Glad, uh, glad we could get that clarified. Let's go now to, um, looks like, Kathy. Kathy is a first-time caller in Kentucky, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Kathy, what's on your mind today? Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering about, in Genesis, when it talks about God's Spirit hovering over the waters. Well, I'm not Catholic. I'm Protestant, but I'm very interested in Catholic faith. So I'm not sure what Catholics believe, but Protestants can't answer my question because I've asked this several times, and I even asked the Catholic oh. priest also, but he couldn't, okay? But if the Spirit of God is hovering over the water, where did the water come from if God made everything out of nothing? Why was the water already here? Okay. All right. Well, the water obviously isn't already there. It's part of the seven days of creation, but the author of Genesis is in the first couple verses summarizing what will occur in the rest of it. And the uh, spirit there is the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Holy Spirit is the primary moving force of heaven and earth, not matter and energy, because it's God's love that gives dynamism to everything that exists. So you will notice in the first part, it's a very tightly organized metaphysical part, of the creation of the world, which sets it apart from pagan religions. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was a formless void and the spirit hovered over the waters. Well, then it begins to recount Mm -hmm. how all the things that are in creation relate to him. And no Catholic would ever, most Catholics that I know, including the fathers of the church, people like St. Augustine would never maintain that the world was created in the six calendar days because obviously, as you say, things like the sun and moon weren't created until the fourth day, if I recall. So how is it possible that it could be seven calendar days? So uh, in notice in each section, what Genesis is emphasizing is all of things that move and all of time all have their source in God who does not move and who is outside of time. And the Holy Trinity, this is a a very veiled reference of the Holy Trinity, Mm 
is at the source of each one of them. So God said, bah, 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 mm-hmm. and it was good. All right? Okay. God is the Father. His speech is the Word. And it being good is the love of the Holy Spirit. And all three of the persons are intimately present constantly in all the various changes that occur in the world as we know it, in, in cosmic orders. Okay. But they're not a part of them. Okay. So. Very good. Kathy, thank you so much for your call. We hope that's yes, helpful for you. you. Appreciate that. Uh, John sent us an email. He says, the creation of man was described twice in Genesis. Was man created twice? All right. Well, he, John Paul II is a master at explaining this. <laughs> there are, uh, at least when I studied the Pentateuch, mm-hmm. uh, even if Moses be considered its author, it has four various editors to whatever was the author's intent. So one is the first chapter and the other is the second and third chapter. And the one uses the word Elohim for God, and the other uses the word Yahweh for God. This sets them apart from each other, although they're speaking about the same event. And John Paul II in The Theology of the Body says that though the, the first account, which is in seven days of creation, is actually chronologically later. And it shows a tightly uh, organized, again, mm-hmm. a, a way of explaining the, the world. It's, he calls it a myth, but by a myth, he doesn't mean like a fable. He has several definitions, I think at least 10 of the word myth, all of which he rejects. And he says that myth there means a primitive way of explaining philosophical truth. Before we had all these horrendous terms like substance, accident, necessity, existence, mm, and yeah. various things. Yeah. So, the one account does not show the personal reactions of the human beings created to their creation. It's just intellectual. The other account is the same experience of creation for the same people, but there their personal reactions are recorded. So, as you know, Adam first names the animals but finds none like himself. And God says it's not good that man should be alone. So from Adam's rib, mm-hmm. not his head or his foot, because otherwise she'd be his superior or inferior, from his rib, because she's his equal, she takes and she create, he creates Eve. Well, John Paul II says when Adam awakes, because God wants to show that he did it, not Adam, and first sees Eve, he gives the first great cry of joy in the history of the human race, and he first speaks the first wedding song, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, because if he didn't have another to whom he could give his love, the creation of the image of God in him would not be complete because God isn't alone. He's a trinity of persons mm-hmm. that does nothing for all eternity but give and receive in truth and love. Okay. So it's the same thing, uh-huh. the same idea but it's from two different points of view, objective and subjective. Very good. 
John, thank you so much uh, for your email. By the way, if you would like to send us an email for a future show, we're available 24-7 at openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. Or if you'd like to text us, just text the letters EWTN to 55000, and we will take it from there. We're going to get to a text from Timothy in just a couple of moments. We'll also be talking with Brent, a first-time caller in White Owl, South Dakota, Uh, A couple of more emails here, a few more phone calls, and then we'll call it a day. But uh, let's get those calls coming in right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open Line Thursday with Dominican Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN. Stay with us. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. So glad you could join us for the Thursday edition of Open Line with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN Radio. A couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you call right now, we can probably get you on today's show. All right, here is Brent now, uh, a first-time caller in White Owl, South Dakota, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Hello, Brent. What's on your mind today? Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. My question is, revolves around I've recently learned of the Holy Scapular, and I was wondering if you could tell me of the benefit, and also how this might compare with, say, wearing a crucifix, for example. Okay. All right, which Holy Scapular? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a green uh, one, there's a brown one. I wear a scapular. The Dominicans have one, too, you know. Yes, indeed. I assume you must mean the brown scapular. Is that true of our Lady of Mount that, Carmel? Uh, right. Yes, a brown scapular. That's okay. the one we were all invested in when we received our first communion. We had no choice. <laughs> uh, the scapular is a sign of devotion, first of all. It was originally an apron worn by monks. And uh, it's a sign of uh, being clothed with the two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor, and with the two great testaments, Old and New Testaments, so scripture. In the Middle Ages, because devotion to Our Lady was rising and becoming much more important, it also took on a significance of a sign of devotion to Mary. Now, what I would say to you is this, obviously the crucifix is a sign of devotion to Our Lord and the scapular is a sign of devotion to Our Lady. They're not, again, contradictory. They're complementary. The promises Mary made to the Order of Carmel uh, are in effect, and the idea is if you wear with devotion, now again, it's not a magic talisman, right? It's the same with the crucifix. If you wear it with devotion, Mm -hmm. and you believe in it, and you ask the intercession of the people whom it represents, that God will help you. So, that you can die a happy death and also in union with our Lord and perhaps not have to go to purgatory either. Mm. So uh, the Dominicans also received their scapular from Mary. The Benedictines were a black scapular. So that's why I asked you, which. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All of them involve devotion to our lady. Yeah. Brent, uh, thank you so much for your call. I'm wearing my brown one right now, but uh, there you go. I was I was uh, reminded that years ago, and I, I don't know if this continues, but there have been cases certainly of uh, drug dealers dying in a hail of bullets, 
in uh, some countries, maybe this country, but probably not. And when, you know, when the body was recovered, they were found to be wearing multiple scapulars, like a dozen of them or 15 of them. Uh, but that goes to the whole superstitious aspect, which is, exactly. which is uh, you know, that's phony baloney. Well, and also, um, I knew someone who worked with some stonecutters in Mexico. Uh-huh. And one guy had this huge tattoo of Our Lady of Guadalupe on his chest. Mm. And one day he pointed to it and said, this is not the mother of God. This is a symbol for Mexico, my country. Ah. So you never know what the, what the, you know, as we are often undereducated in our faith. Sure. You never really know what the reason is for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, uh, I agree with you. That's a superstitious sure, practice. Sure. All right. Open line uh, Thursday with Father Brian here on EWTN Radio. Leonard checking in from YouTube. Leonard says, my question is, is St. Joseph's body also in heaven, body and soul, like Mary? Uh, as far as I'm aware, there is absolutely no tradition for that. And it certainly is not defined by the church okay. in any sense. All right. Now, there may be some, I'm not familiar with all of Josephology, so there may be someone who thinks that St. Joseph also is, uh, you know, assumed into heaven. Mm-hmm. But but that's not a doctrine and, and certainly would be only a pious idea. Okay. And I don't think it's true either. So okay. Very good. Uh, Leonard, thanks for checking us out today on YouTube. Got a text here from Timothy. If you die with a mortal sin, do you go to hell? And does one mortal sin send you to hell? The answer to both questions is yes. (laughs) Okay. Now, by by mortal sin, you mean, remember, uh, an act which is grave in matter, done with full knowledge and complete consent. So both, all three of those conditions are necessary. Which is a kind of, it, it, a, it's kind of a high bar, isn't it? Uh, yes, but it, but the trouble is in the 70s, they did away with the whole idea of mortal sin. Mm. For to commit a mortal sin, you practically had to commit apostasy. Oh, gee. And uh, it's what, what's the famous, um, uh, you know, fundamental option theory. Mm. And uh, it led to the confessionals being emptied. No, it's certainly possible. And I had a fellow just, this is a common problem. I was just in a parish, not this one, mm-hmm. where this man started an argument. Well, I guess maybe it might have, I don't know. It was I can't remember. But this man started an argument with me. And he said, you don't really think God's going to send you to hell because you miss mass on Sunday once, do you? And I said, well, it's possible. Well, why? He's merciful. I said, yeah, but you know, it's a commandment of the church implementing the commandment, the third commandment. It's a serious obligation. And if you mismass through your own fault, what you're basically saying is, I say I love God. But I said, suppose you uh, said you loved a wound, but you never went to her house. Pretty soon she doubted that you were sincere. Yeah. Well, he wasn't convinced. He was absolutely certain that God wasn't going to send you to hell for any one individual deed. Mm. But that is, isn't true. It, it, now, um, I think sometimes people get too rigoristic about this, and they even make venial sins, mortal sins, that have the idea that an idle word is somehow going to send them to hell. Mm. No, that's not true. But a, a, a serious mortal sin, unrepented, uh, certainly can send you to hell. 
Okay, very good. Thank you so much uh, for your question there, Timothy. Glad that you texted us today. Let's go to uh, Patricia now. She is in Charleston, West Virginia, listening on the great St. Paul Radio. Hi, Patricia. What's on your mind today? Hi. Well, I hope this doesn't seem a frivolous question, but it's something I've always wondered about. How did it come to be that we had different divisions of priests like Dominican, Benedictine, and so on? I guess because I'm studying Hebrews and all of the... Uh, priests were Levites until Mechazadek, which is very hard for me to say. So I was just curious how... how Melchizedek, is it it Melchizedek you're trying to say? Yes, the king, uh, the king priest who was not a Levite. Yes. No, no, he wasn't a Levitical priest. He wasn't even Jewish. He's a very mysterious figure. So, uh, so, so the 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 question though is, how did religious orders get their start? Right. As far as priesthood is concerned, we're all the same. But some priests uh, take vows in which they surrender certain goods for the sake of something better, as do the sisters, um, in order to practice a more perfect charity and live in uh, community together. So as far as our priesthood is concerned, we're all the same. We all receive the same character. We all can sacrifice, you know, perform the sacrifice of the master. Remember, the New Testament priesthood is different than Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priests look forward to Christ, and Melchizedek represents him in Hebrews because he's without father, mother, or genealogy. He's the king of peace, the king of Salem. And he offers this very peculiar, and also Abraham pays tithes to him, Mm. so he shows he's superior, and he offers this very peculiar sacrifice, which is a bread and wine. So religious orders got started because there were people who wanted to surrender certain goods for the sake of something better so that they might grow in a more perfect charity in, in community life. Okay. Well, there you go. Uh, Patricia, thank you so much uh, for your call. Appreciate hearing from you. It is um, Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN. A couple lines are open right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Quick question here from Chris. Is convalidation required for people who got married prior to becoming a Catholic? What do you think, Father? (laughs) <laughs> well, you're asking the wrong person. Yeah. <laughs> because I've rarely been a parish priest, and that was about 50 years ago. Mm. And uh, I believe conduct validation has to do with a person who's um, married outside the church, and their marriage has been annulled, so they have to convalidate the marriage. But I wouldn't swear by it. I mean, I have not done marriage things like that. For many, many years. So okay. you're kind of asking the wrong person. Check with your pastor, right? Right, right. Father? Okay. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Very good. And one more uh, quick uh, question as we're um, continuing here on Open Line Thursday. A text from Cynthia, and I'm sure this comes up all the time. How do I effectively discern that I am using God's gifts well? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, you just do your best, you know. You yeah. say your prayers and you... You try. I mean, uh-huh. it's it's kind of related to the whole issue of whether you can know you're in the state of grace or not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the tradition of the church 
is always that uh, since grace is from God's point of view, we're never absolutely certain unless God reveals it to us that we're in the state of grace. But if we're aware of doing our best and we're not aware of having committed more mortal sin, we're uh, uh, not absolutely certain with mathematical certitude, but we have probable certitude that we're in the state of grace. And of course, the example of that was uh, it's quoted in the Catechism, Joan of Arc, who in her trial was asked if she was in the state of grace or not. And it was a trick question of those theologians. Because <laughs> if she said yes, they would have burned her as a heretic because she can't know that absolutely. And if she said no, they would have burned her as a witch because then all her things she had done must have been by diabolical inspiration. Mm. And Joan of Arc's answer was, if I'm not, may God put me there. And if I am, may God keep me there. Wow. You know, you just have to do your best. Sure. And if you, if you do your best, you're probably using God's grifts well. On the other hand, if you think you have a vocation or all those things, you, you may need a further help with mm. that. Okay. And that's what directors are for, basically. Sounds good. Cynthia, thank you so much uh, for your text. We do appreciate hearing from you today. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. Tom Price reminding you to check out Women of Grace with Johnette Williams tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. Eastern. Johnette welcomes her guest, Joy Pinto. I'm sure they're going to have a fascinating show. It'll be, again, tomorrow morning, 11 a.m. Eastern, right here and only here on EWTN Radio. Back to the phones now, and we'll talk with Dan, a first-time caller in Paola, Kansas, listening to, their, listening to us there. Uh, let me click on that. On EWTN.com, listening online. Hello, Dan. What's on your mind today, sir? Uh, thank you. Uh, Father Glenn, I had a question about first-class relics. Uh, I'm going through my mother's, some of my mother's items in her estate, and I came across what appear to be three first-class relics that have a, each of them the pictures of nuns, and below each picture is a small piece of cloth with what appears to be a droplet of blood. And the, at one time, they were all glued into a scrapbook, so the backs are covered with glue and paper, so there's no way to identify uh, any writing on them. Uh, I was just curious, is there a way to identify these relics, or what should be done with the relics? Okay. All right. Well, there's no way to identify them if there's no name written on them. Normally, uh, first-class relics also have a paper mm -hmm. with them that's signed to demonstrate, you know, that they are, in fact, first-class relics. Uh, really, they shouldn't be in an album. They should be in a reliquary. And you can acquire reliquaries fairly easily. And uh, in other words, venerated, depending on who they are. If they're not uh, saints or blessings or whatever, uh, you can just keep them there in the album and try to discern and discover who the identity of them is. Okay. But until you know the identity, there's not much you can do. Okay. Very good. Thank you so much uh, for that. Let's go now to uh, Kevin, a first-time listener in uh, a first-time caller in Toronto, listening to us on Sirius XM Channel One Thirty. Hello, Kevin. What's on your mind today? Oh, hi there. Uh, good afternoon. Um, 
I went through the RCIA program probably about 20 years ago, and of course we had our first confession as converts. And when I was done, you know, 10, 15 years later, um, I still reflect on some sins that I know I just didn't think of at the time when I did my examination of conscience, things that I did, you know, when I was a teenager in my youth. Mm-hmm. And am I, am I forgiven for those at this stage now because of that first confession? Am I forgiven for all of those? All right. Uh, I would say uh, you have to make a distinctions. Uh, first of all, of course, if you did this because you forgot to do it, or because some person teaching RCI didn't tell you these things were sins, then you did them in good faith. And, you know, you say at the end of your confession, for these and all the sins I cannot now remember, I have penitent God and absolute you, Father. So, yes, those sins were forgiven. However, the church has a, a caveat about this, that if it's a mortal sin and you remember it, not because it hasn't been forgiven, but because you need to place it under the power of the keys, it should be mentioned in confession now. Normally, this teaching, according to moral theologians, should not be told to scrupulous individuals. Yeah. <laughs> because they'll go through their entire life continuously trying to find something wrong with the forgiveness that happened to them in confession. But if you're not an overly scrupulous person and you remember it, it's you have to, according to the Council of Trent, not because it hasn't been forgiven, mm-hmm. but because of the relationship of the power of the keys given to Peter and the apostles to bind and loose, that you just place that in your what your present confession. Okay, sounds good. Kevin, thanks so much uh, for your call. Let's go to David in Los Angeles this afternoon, listening to EWTN via podcast. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? Oh, yeah. Uh, thank you very much for taking my call, Father Milady. Uh, just fantastic. I've been listening to you for years. Uh, and it's, it's all good, and I like your disposition. Uh, I'm originally from back east. I'm not sure where you're from. I Maybe you said once or twice, but uh, it really reminds me a lot of the people culturally or communicative-wise so I've spoken to in the past. My question, I had three questions for today, but I'm only going to do one because the council uh, told me to only go with one today and call the others back later. Uh, today's reading, in terms of uh, uh, Jesus' words, I kind of said, did Jesus really just say that? Uh, and what he said, and I think I understand right, is that the he's speaking to everyone, and Jews, I imagine there's also non uh, you know, Jews in the audience possibly he's speaking to, but are who the message is for. But he seems to indicate that uh, Jews will be judged by him with Moses' uh, rules, or that, uh, and even there, they don't hold up to those rules already. That's part of his condemnation. They're not really doing that. And uh, so I, is, that quite, is that the way it is? That the Jews, is he basically saying you're going to be used by, judged by those rules, and by the way, you're not even getting that right? And, uh, you know, that was my question. All right. Um, I think that's a little too um, specific. The point, as far as I understand the reading today, is that they're, they're the Jews he's speaking to, and there's this growing opposition in this discourse, as you know, concerning his identity. Today he's calling on testimony. You know, his words testify to him, his works testify to him, the scriptures testify to him, and Moses testifies to him. And the fact that the Jews 
do not believe him in him means that they're acting against the fact that Moses testifies to him. As you know, this is, and, and therefore he will be the one to judge them because he was to Jesus that Moses looked. And as you remember, this same idea applies as the discourse gets more, oh gosh, violent because it's all setting us up for the passion with Abraham. You know, if you were sons of Abraham, you would rejoice to see my day. Abraham believed. And then they you know, were no lawless breed. Where, well, the fact that you don't believe the way Abraham believes. He looked before and they said, you're not 50 years old yet. Remember, he says before Abraham came to be, I am. Mm. And they know he's claiming to be God then. And they take up stones to throw at him. So and the, the idea is. The Old Testament is a necessary preparation for the New Testament. And people like Moses and Abraham are saints. They're actually saints because they're looking forward in future to Christ and the Messiah. And that's whom they're testifying to. The fact that the, certain of the Jews do not believe in him means that they don't believe them. And so they will be the standard under which they're judged uh, as far as not believing in him, which is, of course, the great sin of all, which will eventually then the crucify him. Mm. All right. And David, thank you so much uh, for your call. Open line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. Let's go now to Arturo in California, also listening today on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hi, Arturo. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi. Uh, hi, Tom, and hi, Father. Uh, I'll be retiring next year, and um, I'm interested in joining the RCIA ministry. Um, goal is to be teaching, and uh, I'm wondering what is the best way to prepare for that. Read the Catechism. Yeah. <laughs> Study the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Right. It was written in uh, the behest of the Synod in 1986. An English translation was approved in 1993. It's the most recent statement of the faith, and it was written precisely for that purpose. The bishops met together after Vatican II and the, to celebrate its 20th anniversary of closure, and they themselves admitted that after Vatican II, there had been so much upheaval theological in the church, even they weren't sure what we believed in still. <laughs> so they asked for a clear statement of faith, and that's what the purpose of it is. And the, there's no better way an RCIA person can train themselves, especially if you're, um, you know, an open, accessible person in your personality and things like that, than to read the catechism and study it. Because that's what really the neophytes, the people in RCIA, should be educated in. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the book itself, I mean, if you're just getting started, Arturo, uh, the book itself is, it may seem a little daunting uh, but it is readable. It, it certainly is. And uh, if you if you take it a day at a time and just keep chipping away at it, I think you'll you'll get it right, Father. Well, maybe not everything, but you'll certainly get a good deal. Sure. And uh, you know, I get sick as a former professor and a Thomist of people telling me about our religion, especially pastors. Now bring it down, bring it down, bring it down. The lady don't understand this. Bring it down, bring it down. Well, finally, I'll say, you know, Father. This is the infinite truth of the living God, which is revealed to us in our religion. 
There's only so far you can bring that down, and it ceases to be Christianity. Yeah. Low Catholicism. Yeah. And and, and uh, you know, uh, there's some people have such allergies. They want fast food religion like they have fast food food. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time to understand our faith. A Muslim could learn to be a Muslim in a half an hour. There's five things you have to learn, but not a Catholic. I mean, my, we have the most intelligent religion on earth. We're the only religion that believes that faith and reason can be reconciled with each other. And people want to learn it all in five minutes. Now, steep yourself in our doctrine as best you can. Maybe you won't understand everything, but you'll certainly understand a good bit. And study it. Study it. Um, I, I know someone. He's an interesting guy. He's a, a, a fundamentalist, even a Puritan. He's actually a Puritan, but he's Puerto Rican, which is weird, <laughs> in my opinion. But he is a truck driver who basically spends a good bit of his time studying the scripture and commentaries. And he actually has podcasts where he tries to teach Bible teaching. And I respect him very much because he's done research and he's tried to steep himself in this. That's what we need our teachers to do. Yeah. God bless you, Arturo. I think we have time for one more quick one here. Alroy in Allen, Texas. We've got about 30 seconds. Alroy, what's on your mind today? Um, hi. Uh, I have a question on uh, the corporal and the spiritual works of mercy. Um, it says, uh, from what I know, is that you don't use, lose your salvation if you don't do these uh, acts. Uh, you, well, uh, yes, that's true in a way. But if you're living the two great commandments, to love God and love your neighbor, that's the way to do it. Now, you don't have to do all of seven of them, Uh corporal and spiritual. But if you were to deny them all, too, and say, I'm not going to be merciful to anybody, I would think that would be a problem with your salvation, especially in Christianity. For sure. Sorry sorry we didn't have more time to uh, really get to your question. Or Marie in San Antonio, uh, please call us back on our next program, Marie, and we'll put you at the head of the line. Father, uh, could you please leave us with your blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Thank you, Father, and we hope you have a very successful uh, parish mission tonight and uh, safe travels for you. Okay, thank you. Don't forget, uh, tomorrow at the same time, it'll be Colin Donovan talking theology here on EWTN's Open Line. I will be with you along with Colin. Until then, we'll have a great time, I'm sure, tomorrow. Have a great day. <music>